Blog Talk Radio.
and starting off first and foremost, we like to now bring in Brother Anthony. We would like to welcome you to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Hey, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Anthony. Father Brother Anthony, we'd like to introduce to you Brother Haki. Brother Haki, welcome <coughs> to Africa on the move. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Tamati Mishoki, and of course, my thing is all about institution building. And one of the things I find, you know, ironic is that when we talk about war, often we have this perception that war only pertains to those countries exterior of the United States, not necessarily understanding that war is also being committed against its people right here. I read an article in pursuit of war from an international perspective, and it's very interesting. Let me start off with a quote, Brother Africa. It starts with, since World War II, the U.S. has intervened in 12 countries over 400 times, attempted to overthrow 50 countries, attempted to assassinate more than 50 foreign leaders, attempted to suppress popular movements in 20 countries, dropped bomb over at least 30 countries, sought to influence elections according to Carnegie Mellon University, 81 times between 1946 to 2000, end the quote. Now, this policy of full-spectrum dominance or military domination of resources extends far beyond foreign countries, but applies to the U.S. as well. For example, Project 84 seeks to intern or incarcerate large numbers of its citizenry. Uh, the objective is to remove those individuals or groups who potentially complicate the government plan that ensures the systematic looting of the economy by the wealthy. This policy originated in the 70s, and its intent is to systematically remove large number of people the government considers esoteric or expendable. The supposition can be drawn very, very easily, and that supposition is the availability of resources for poor people is not an option, and mass incarceration is the only means of political control. And this drive for full-spectrum dominance does not end with Rex 84. In the 2000s, Congress passed similar laws, even more pernicious in scope. Debated and mildly contested by few politicians, these laws entail the message of Rex 84, but go a step further. Under this plan, five regions of the U.S. will be set aside for the purpose of incarcerating millions of its own citizens. This plan, under the National Defense Organization Act, in conjunction with the Department of Homeland Security, sees its role as the international army, protecting the state against the malcontents, the impoverished, the idealists who dream of a better society. Given the objectives of such policy, how does this square with austerity policies that routinely transfer more and more wealth to the wealthy, while denying the citizens the bare basic like employment, shelter, and food? Now, someone please tell me, what is the plan? Is disregarding you know, the obvious? Is that viable? Is that working? If not, institutions are the only means in which we can disseminate information that is needed to confront a very horrific situation or conceivably we will find ourselves confronted with. So I encourage people to definitely please build institutions while you can because once things hit the road, hit the, once the things, hit the, you know, once the things uh, unveil themselves, then you know, uh, creating uh, 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 or moving to create those institutions become much, much more problematic. So we need to do that now while, there's, while we had the opportunity to actually do it. So I encourage people to get about the business of building institutions. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Haki, Father Brother Haki. We now bring Brother Moses, and we'd like to welcome Brother Moses to Africa on the move. Welcome. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. 
My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I, I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And thank you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Brother Mozino, it's always an honor to have you as a participant. All right, panelists, let's get started with our party by dealing with the first segment of our program. Like always, I'd like for y'all to share with our listening audience in the world what's going on in your world and the community. Brother Anthony. Okay. <clears throat> the New York, New Jersey, Cuba Sea Coalition. <clears throat> is presenting a program commemorating the fifth anniversary of the le- release of the Cuban Five. Uh, this will take place at the People's Forum, located at 320 West 37th Street, between 8th and 9th Avenues in New York, New York, on Saturday, December 14th, starting at 6 p.m. Uh, the Cuban Five were our five Cuban uh, patriots uh, who were under corporate operatives who were on a mission in Miami beginning in 1990 to monitor the actions of Miami-based terrorist groups that were planning and carrying out bombings and other terrorist acts against Cuba aiming to to bring uh, death and destruction to the island. And uh, they were unjustly imprisoned uh, after being arrested by the FBI on September 12, 1998, uh, for committing espionage against the U.S. government. And uh, they were eventually found, um, you know, not guilty of that and released about 14 years later. So, uh, you know, and... um, you know, so uh, that's a brief history of how uh, of how they were called the Cuban Five, and who they were. Okay, thank you, Brother Anthony. Next, we go to Brother Hackey. What's going on in your world and the community, Brother Hackey? Well, more more the same, Brother uh, Brother Africa. Uh, in March, a young brother named Damon Martin, 16 years of age, was killed under questionable circumstances in Sunrise, Florida. Eventually, a police officer attempted to apprehend the young brother and, in the process, deployed his, his taser. The problem was the teenager was in close proximity of a canal. It's alleged that the teenager felt in water and was heard yelling for help. This was significant because the teenager could swim. Suspicions were the taser contributed to his drowning, and the officer's stated refusal to help speaks values as to the officer's motivation. Now, there has been documented another officer wanted to dive in and assist Damon, but was told not to intervene. Perhaps the officer knew the other officer who wanted to help on life would have been in peril if he touched Damon since water is a conductor of electricity. So that is very, very interesting. Also, one of the things that caught me, that I found extremely interesting, is that a glass cartridge was found at, you know, only uh, very close to the canal itself. Now, it's very, very interesting, and the gas, the gas uh, cartridge is geared toward, you know, making it possible to fire off those barbs which goes into the, to the body to administer the shock. The mere fact that this, this cartridge was ejected speaks values in terms of uh, why would you, if you got the barbs in his body, then why would you uh, need an additional 
gas cartridge. The gas cartridge is only useful in terms of propelling that uh, those barbs. So the mere fact that one cartridge, gas cartridge was on on the on close to the canal suggests that perhaps that he used a second cartridge in terms of uh, ejecting those barbs into him while he was in the water, which contributed to his drowning. So it's a very interesting case. But again, uh, if the African masses don't stand up and, and demand accountability, if we don't understand the necessity in terms of organization, then we, we simply invite these kind of uh, tragedies to continue to happen over and over again. And as I alluded to before, one of the things we've got to be very, very concerned about is that when we talk about the, the sweeping fascism that exists in society, we can ill afford to be laid back in terms of these kind of cases. We have to get involved in terms of what's going on. So this case I find extremely interesting. Thank you, Brother Hakri. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, we'll continue on with the never-ending saga of will they impeach him or won't they? And it seems like this week we've determined that he will be impeached, and it's just a question of uh, of making a vote. And uh, and there's enough evidence that uh, he's he's guilty of 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 bribery uh, with the Ukraines trying to. The leverage them uh, to do his his bidding uh, mafia style, like uh, we've been good to you now, we need a favor from you, and uh, so I think it will go to the Senate, and the Republicans will stay in their ground, and and that'll be it. Uh, but it continues; the revelations continue to come out with uh, in, interesting facts and. And so it's, it's a political education going on. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Panelists, Brother Haku, you said something at the beginning of your introduction into this program dealing with the war from inside of this country or way in the country. And we had spoke upon um, this aspect one time before in terms of how do you what constitute a war? Or the different forms of war plays out. Now, panelists, can we just have a little, little, little discussion to try to drive this point home to our listening audience in terms of when we talk about a war? Can you give us some concretized examples of how this warfare is playing itself out inside of the, the territory of the United States and its citizens? Start us off, Brother Haki. Yeah, well, well, you know, clearly, you know, when we talk about wars, you're absolutely correct. It takes many, many forms. And the thing that confuses people is they think that form is an express uh, intent to actually destroy when, in fact, war takes many, many forms. And one of the ways in terms of in the forms that it takes is psychologically. So the one way to disarm a, a people, disarm what, they, what the government perceives as an adversary, is to deny them information. If you deny them information, then they're vulnerable to manipulation. And one of the things when we talk about the level of poverty that exists in society, and we ask ourselves, why in the, in the society is fluent as America, why are there so many people impoverished? Why are so many people homeless? What's going on in terms of that? Well, it's interesting because when you ask most American citizens in terms of the causes of, of, of homelessness, why people don't have access to food, most Americans can't tell you precisely why. And this is directly attributed to the fact that the propaganda machine in the U.S. is very, 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 very sophisticated in terms of the ability to see the masses of folks. 
This is part. This is part of the, the war strategy of being committed against the people, because you can't fight that which you don't understand, and that is what is and that is all about. Materially, when we talk about war, one of the things you have to understand in terms of not providing people the proper nourishment, in terms of being able to subsist, uh, is also uh, uh, reminiscent of war. So when we think about people not having the proper nutrients in terms of being able to actually think, then it does have repercussions in, 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 in schools, not only in grade schools, high school, but in the university level as well. And so, so, so the, the, those positions of power understand that providing people nutrition, proper nutrition, then you also can debilitate or weaken the people in terms of, you know, bending them to your will. And this is also part and parcel of what war is all about. So we understand that war is not simply shooting guns and, and firing missiles and, 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 and blowing up things, but in fact, um, the prerequisite to war is often, you know, things like, you know, material assault or those things like spiritual assault, those things that tend to weaken the human, the human, the human soul. So clearly, you know, when we talk about war in the context of America, we got to understand there are all these ills that ills that we talk about in, in, in America, specifically, you know, the homelessness, the unemployment, the homelessness. And we, when we talk about all this stuff, they clearly understand that none of this stuff is haphazard. All of this is, all of this is part of a, a, broad, a broader plan. And so, therefore, for us to deceive ourselves to think that somehow that these things are somehow just the natural ebb and flow of society, we're, we're misinformed. We have to understand that these things serve the interest. That interest is the interest of capitalism. And until we understand that fundamental truth, we'll never understand why we're at war. And unfortunately, because the government is in such a strategic position to disarm us intellectually, uh, we participate in our own destruction, not even understanding that this, this, this war that they wage against us, you know, can only we only can uh, uh, prevail if, in fact, uh, we we are we're adequately informed in terms of what's going on and be in a position to fight back. So war takes many many forms. Brother Anthony, you have anything you'd like to add to that? Your perspective yes. on how war plays itself out inside the border U.S. against the people? Sure. I've had a couple of other forms of warfare in addition to the ones that Hakeem mentioned. Cultural warfare, which we've been subject to for nearly 500 years, and um, propaganda warfare. And uh, propaganda is um, either the withholding or the falsification of information that people need in order to make an informed decision. Cultural warfare is uh, when, uh, when, when your cultural values are attacked. And uh, you're um, you're forced to try to fit in to someone else's culture, uh, and um, you know pass on, and um, you know and forget and and neglect or forget your own, and that causes people to act against their own interests. And we've been subject to both forms of those for centuries even before the U.S. came into existence. Mm-hmm. Brother Moses, would you like to add anything to this area of warfare being played out against the people inside the borders of the U.S.? Yeah, there's a war going on. Uh, I think Warren Buffett said there's a class war going on, and we're winning. I mean, in the ruling class or the the wealthy owning class is winning. Uh, basically, the wealth is being sucked up. Uh, 
Um, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer as, as the economy goes. And so, you know, capitalism is is the property class, you know, taken and taken from the lower class, the working class. And, uh, you know, this is a disproportionate share of wealth for each class. And, uh, you know, constantly the, the capitalist class is augmenting this share, and the, the lower class, the working class, is being diminished in this share. And so, you know, health care, uh, education, food, clothing, and shelter are all being denied, in fact, uh, because of the kind of system that we're under. You know, it could be different. And so, you know, we have to look to Cuba and, and as an example of what is possible. And so, you know, there is a war going on, and we're losing. Thank you. Also, Brother Africa, let me just interject real quickly. And one of the things that we often don't talk about, but I think it's important to mention, and that is in terms of the role of stress in terms of as a, as a means of war. One of the things in terms of stress, and when you talk to you know, you know, um, bio neurologists, one of the things they talk about in terms of stress in terms of its, its ability to actually rewire the brain. So daily tasks, uh, specifically when it comes to academics, in terms of being able to be the best you can be, are to some degree compromised you know, by stress. And so you have a community that's inundated with stress you know, 365 days a year. And, of course, it has a very negative impact in terms of young, to young children's ability to learn or even focus. So clearly those musicians of power understand this dynamic. So it's coming upon the community to understand the nature of stress to get together to create those conditions to mitigate that stress. Because if we don't mitigate that stress, one thing, one thing is sure, our, our, our kids not only become more inundated with this kind of stress, but ultimately, you know, it, the kind of stress that they're inundated with uh, ceases to uh, make it possible for them to be all they can be. And so, therefore, we have expectation about young people, but if you have a situation where they're contending with stress on a day-to-day level, knowing that their brain is being rewired, then it's on us as a community, uh, you know, to stand up and say, listen, we have to get together and protect our children, if nothing else. So, clearly, this, 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 this question of war, Brother Africa, is a very intricate one, and it's not as, not as simplistic as people like to believe. And one of the struggles for us in terms of getting our people to understand that when we talk about this war, understand that these are not conscious processes. When we talk about the debilitating nature of public policy, be it social, political, or otherwise, they understand that those people who implement those policies understand the destructive nature of the plans or the policies that they implement. There is no mistake about it. It's consciously planned. And we as community, at some point, got to begin to realize that this is the nature of the beast and that we have to be intelligently, we have to move to counter what they're doing. If we don't, then we simply, our, our youth become susceptible, you know, to the strategy employed by those people in positions of power who want to see these kids fail. So this is the fundamental problem we, we're confronted with when we talk about war. We have to acknowledge there is a war and understand it's all these strategies and tactics and move to, 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 to undermine those strategies and tactics which, which, which uh, injure our children so greatly. Yeah, Pamela, so I concur in all that with, with, in which I have heard so far. I would just like to add these points, and you can um, weigh in on it, Pamela. Um, when we talk about warfare and one of the methods or, or, or tactics that we use, what people don't understand is just the whole question of 
the appropriation of the federal budget, federal, state, and regional budget when it comes to the government. When you look at policy decisions, how they uh, allocate money, how they take from one area and give to others, so those decisions are, 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 are tactics and forms of warfare that the people don't understand. Even this question of um, when you talk about looking at how to deal with our youth in, 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 in education institutions, I have been um, enlightened that many of our youth who have been identified as being an ADD kid and they're drugging their kids up, well, the chemical makers of the drugs that they give their kids equivalent to the same thing as someone on, on someone in the community on the street inject themselves with crack. And clearly, you know, these drugs are having a major impact in terms on in terms of distorting our kids' growth and development. I was real curious in terms of when you look at years ago when they made a policy of uh, uh, Odell plan and taking out the necessity for physical education, particularly at a real young during a, during a real young period of time of one's development, when you talk about the elementary level, why would they take out um, this whole question of the necessity for physical education at, when you are very young? Because I was always told that this whole question of physical education is part of your overall mental makeup of development, you know. And as a result of it, part of the um, uh, epidemic or this whole thing of um, diabetes is contributing to a lot of lack of physical activity with the body. So these are uh, these are forms and tactics that the enemy is using to find ways to neutralize, discriminate, uh, and to kill a, a, a group of people, or groupings of people in this case. Uh, recently, I thought it was real interesting in terms of, I don't know if people will, but, you know, recently... For some reason, the higher education institutions, when you come to African universities, for some reason, now they are advocating a lot more money, particularly to African universities. And people want to know what is that is all about. I'd be real curious in terms of, in a contact discussion, get your analysis on why all of a sudden now the federal government is pumping money in so-called, so-called African universities. You know, from my understanding is that. He who controls your your financial institutions, your education institutions, it becomes theirs. They control it. So, um, for the people who are listening, in particular the press communities inside the United States, these are just some of the things we need to look at and be conscious of. It must be part of our overall equation as we begin to address the whole question of how do we rid ourselves from this oppression that we face on a daily basis. Panelists. Y'all can respond to that statement and anything else you'd like to add to this question about warfare being played out inside the border of the United States. I think one more example of warfare being played out is uh, the class struggle. Uh, we've struggled to get food stamps and, and other uh, 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 safety net programs in place and Trump is now cutting back and changing the rules of food stamps, and hundreds of thousands of people will not be on the roads come next year sometime. Uh, you know, this gains that are fought for are, are just being cut back. Thank you. 
Yeah, well, the economic argument, uh, Brother Africa, is, is a very good one. Um, and one of the things, when we look at in terms of the tax cuts, you know, for the very, very wealthy, one has to ask the question, do those tax cuts stimulate the economy? Does it does the economy any good? It doesn't. The only thing it does is inflate the interest or inflate the earnings of the wealthy. And the question is, so why would you give all this money to a few people at the expense of the overall economy? Well, it's all about power. And so, therefore, what they're essentially saying is that you know, we, the money equates to power. And so, therefore, if you, don't, if you have money, then you have power. If you have none, you have no power. So, in other words, your ability to shape policy, your ability to, 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 to um, impact your legislators, your ability you know, to uh, get those things done in the best interest of the citizenry uh, becomes almost impossible to achieve simply because you don't have the money. So this is clearly an act of war. And, and one of the things, when you talk about the Federal Reserve in terms of, you know, you know just constantly, you know, pumping out money, creating money from nowhere, uh, is, is very, very interesting. Because what is interesting is that when they pump out all this money in terms of normal economic, uh, economic understanding, uh, normally you would think that when you put in out $60 billion, putting out $60 billion out of thin air every month, you think that it would be inflationary, that it would cause the value of money to actually decrease. But that's not what's happening. In fact, when we talk when we, when we talk about the $60 billion per month that they pump out, it does nothing in terms of the impacting the economy. In other words, interest doesn't move. It stays steady. So the question becomes, who benefits from such a system? Because normally when it comes to interest, it comes, to question, it comes down to a question of borrowing. So when you borrow, there's a price to pay for borrowing. Well, they create a situation where they don't have to. They, don't have, they can borrow. Without actually saying paying a price, a price in terms of interest, and so therefore only the wealthy benefit from this sixty billion dollar month that they're, that they're arbitrarily creating out of thin air. The mass of people have no interest uh, or, no, or no benefits whatsoever in terms of that sixty billion a, year, a month that the Federal Reserve is pumping out. So again, it's all about it's all about the warfare. It's all about who's in and who's out. It's all about you know who has legitimacy, who doesn't. It's all about who should survive and who shouldn't. And that is an act of war. And so there's a treaty defining who should live and who should die. And if we don't understand in the most simplest terms, I guess we guess I guess we'll never understand, you know, this cool concept in terms in terms of war. But this question in terms that you raise in terms of about the uh, the all this investments, the federal government investment in African universities is quite simple. They're investing in African universities for a specific reason. They won't have a particular criteria um and they want to get rid of certain programs like African Studies and bring in programs like, you know, uh, Department of Homeland Security, those kind of programs. So this, the intent for the federal government is to uplift those institutions which are very, very oppressive. And the best way to facilitate the oppression of the African community is to have African people administer those programs uh, coming out of these African universities. So the government uh, uh, motives is not altruistic. They don't give a damn about the, 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 the suffering of the masses of people in the society. They're concerned about what's best in terms of propping up a system which is which is a, a, across the board exploitive. So I think that all this money they're spending at African universities is not going to contribute one iota to the to the overall uh, uh, well-being of the African community. So we got to be very clear on that point. So again, we're talking about an act of war, and we on the university level got to be intelligent enough to figure out what they're doing. If the university students can't figure out what they're doing, then that is problematic. I would add also that uh, that this uh, pumping money into HBCUs is another aspect of the uh, cultural warfare on our people. 
because the purpose of that funding, in addition to what Haki indicated, is to control the academic programs that exist at these institutions and therefore control the students that come out of these institutions. So, again, it's something that people have to be aware of, and we can only increase our awareness and understanding through permanent political organization. And also, I uh, just would like to add that when we look at this continuation of the police department assassinating our, our people, clearly this is a part of their psychological warfare against our people as a tactic that they use to create this question of normalcy and acceptance. The more and more they continue to do this, and there's no organized resistance against it, at some point in time, they understand that people will come, have a tendency to come to accept something that they're constantly saying over, 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 and over, and over again, and just, you know, you know, something of something of habit or something of the norm. And that's what I see is going on on a weekly basis when you're constantly getting reports how the police departments are constantly just assassinating our people. And there's no kind of response, accountability uh, to that particular institution for doing such grievous behavior and acts. Yes, go ahead, Brother Jabari. So I've researched um, one particular HBCU, Howard University in Washington, D.C.'s board before. And as you and I have discussed, when we looked at the board of trustees, there were some very um, peculiar individuals that were members of the board. If you don't mind me sharing, let's just critique, as we talk about this whole HBCU phenomenon, some of the members of this HBCU's board. You have the CFO of Citigroup, who is uh, one Mr. Mark A.L. Mark Mason. You have Dr. Richard Goodman, the executive um, vice president of PepsiCo, and we understand there's been recently a number of phenomenon involving whatever Pepsi's chemical makeup is. It's very questionable in terms of just how unhealthy it is. You have Alfonso R. Jackson, who was the housing urban secretary of housing and urban development under George W. Bush, and we know how ineffective he was in terms of um, ensuring that that area was doing well. You have Mr. James J. Mirren, the chairman and CEO of MGM Resorts International. So if you're going to have these kind of individuals on your board of trustees of this institution, you're nothing more than a corporation. And if you're nothing more than a corporation, that means you're going to reflect that of what is in the best interest of Wall Street. So basically this is a kickback to those institutions saying they basically continue to be right-wing um, reformist institutions that are not going to create progressive minds. The whole point is indoctrination. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, one of the things I'd like to raise with this panel is also since we are talking about what's going on with our community, if you're listening to Africa on the Move, you have any comments that you'd like to make or questions, please feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four, last four numbers. Hit 1, you have any comments 
or question that you'd like to raise. But in terms of, in terms of looking at this whole question of uh, what's going on in our community and everything, I ran across a couple of articles of interest I'd like to get y'all response to. One of the articles is dealing with this whole question of, I would say, planning and technology. Now, things just don't happen out of the blue, clear blue sky. Let me just critique and read this brief article for Sucker Panelists, and I'd like to just get your response to it. It's, it comes from the T- Tacoma News Tribune, Petruna, Tribunal, dated April 11, 1953. And the title of this article is, There Will Be No Escape in Future from Telephones. And this is from the American Press out of Pasadena. It stated, stated that the telephone of the future. Mark R. Sullivan, San Francisco president and director of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company, said in the address Thursday night, just what from the future telephones would take is, of course, pure speculation. Here's my prophecy. In the final development, the telephone will be carried out. Okay, check this out. In the final development, the telephone will be carried about by the individual, perhaps as we carry a watch today. It probably will require no dial or equivalent, and I think the user will be able to see each other if they want, and they can talk. Who knows, but what it may actually translate from one language to another. And this article was written back in 1953 in April. Uh, what the telephone, true to the telephone, may look like. And when I read this article, it's just a constant reminder of you know, those in power, those in control, they plan 10, 20, 30, 40 years in advance. These things that are happening today are no fluke. They are planned to be designed to do that. So, panelists, your response to this to this particular article. What do y'all make from this? You know, it's said that <clears throat> um, oftentimes you may have to. Well, a lot of times you hear people who make predictions in terms of where technology is headed off of what they see, and that often becomes reality. So, in regards to this article. It was clear this gentleman that worked in the telecommunication industry had foresight to know that there was going to have to be a way in terms of if you want to make more money, you got to do something better than just a landline phone, which wasn't always going to be accessible. And it also enabled people to keep tabs too, because something you got to understand in today's context is about 15 years ago, 15 years ago or so, the key way people would navigate if they were traveling long distances in their vehicle was the GPS system. Now, because the GPS technology is portable and put on everybody's phone, you don't see people with the what was the traditional GPS system. So the fact that you have these traveling beacons where people can track you any given time, all day, every day, especially if your um, location feature is turned on, it's bearing evidence that this gentleman clearly did his research and knew where the reality was in terms of something which at any given moment people would know exactly where you are, what you're doing, and they can locate you. Yeah, I don't think think anybody should be surprised that when we we talk about organization, the government is is quite organized. And when we talk about research and development, uh, clearly they got tons of money and lots of time 
terms of kicking around ideas in terms of which way forward in terms of the future. So we shouldn't be surprised at that. For instance, you know, when we look at it in terms of they're talking about, you know, they thought they, 20, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they were talking about warfare in urban areas, you know, not just in, around the world, but in the United States as well. Now, interestingly, you know, 20 years ago, you're talking about warfare in urban areas in the United States 20 years ago. Now, what what was it about this? What was it about this government that compelled you to 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 think, you know, you know, 20 years in advance about what you're going to do in terms of, you know, dealing with potential uprising, you know, uh, in America? What is it? What is it about American society that even made you think in the first place that there will be an uprising in in, in 20 years? Well, clearly they understand that because they study, they understand and roll into particular specifically when they talk about capitalism. They understand damn well that the kind of um, um, uh, hopelessness that are confronting so many people, the lack of ho- the, the homelessness, the lack of education, the lack of access to food and shelter, they all understand that that is a feature of the future. They understand that. So they prepared for, they began preparing for that 20 years ago. And so nobody should be surprised, you know, when they, when they, when they, when they, when they come up with these ideas that these people, these corporations, these corporation heads, uh, are privy to certain information in terms of research and development. A lot of them spearhead these movements, I mean, these, these policies in terms of, you know, which way forward in terms of technology. So nobody should be surprised. Well, I think what we have to do is understanding that that's the nature of the beast, and that we got to begin to create institutions, and when we start thinking, you know, you know, outside of the box, you know, 10, 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, we have to do that. Because if we don't do that, we're always at a disadvantage. And that is the fundamental problem that we're confronted with. Because at this point, you know, uh, they're extremely organized and we're so disorganized. And so this is, we keep talking about the importance of organization. But at some point, people have to understand that this is just not uh, platitudes. This is something that we actually have to do because we're talking about our survival. So nobody should be surprised at all, Brother Africa, in terms of their, 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 you know, their, uh, uh, their propensity in terms of, you know, research and actually thinking about, you know, uh, what, what they need for the future. So that's just the way it is. Could I add something to that, Brother Africa? If I could use Anthony. Sure. Uh, in addition to that, uh, because the capitalists are so well organized, they share information with each other. A lot of the phenomena that Haki described took place in other parts of the world. In, in other places where capitalism had reached a critical stage of development, the people start rebelling. So it's not like that there's a crystal ball or anything. It's just that the pattern has been observed in other places. And the ruling class of, of all nations tend to talk to communicate with each other. That's why they have That's these very have- various conferences and con- concrete meetings and so on. They share information. So uh, if uh, if the enemy is that well organized that they can share information with each other, we have to get to that level of organization. So that and we have to become aware of what's going on not only in the U.S. but in other parts of the world. You know, you know, it's interesting. You know, it's, brother, it's interesting that uh, brother Anthony raised that point. You know, one of the things in terms of um, you know geoengineering, uh, what is very very interesting. That we talk about, you know, Star Wars, and we talk about utilizing weaponry in outer space. That was a concept that was bended about over 25 years ago. Well, today is a reality. And here's the irony: when they talk about geo, you know, geoengineering, and we talk about in terms of uh, the decline of the uh, the 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 um, 
the, uh, the spear that protects the earth, the ozone layer. We don't talk in there at all about the fact that a lot of these geoengineering, a lot of these 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 in spaces, these weaponry that they're innovating, has a, a a a very negative impact in terms of the ozone layer. We don't talk about that. So when we talk about ozone, we only talk about methane or we talk about carbon, but we don't talk about in terms of you know the kind of aerosols, the kinds of uh, thing chemicals they use in outer space for the sole purpose of you know controlling weather patterns. We don't talk about that. So when we talk about, you know, weather as an instrument of destruction, we don't talk about that. But the reason we don't talk about it is because the people in the positions of power understand that if we understood precisely what they're doing in outer space, then we made the connection between what they're doing and the depletion of the ozone. It's better for them to have us believe that the problem is carbon and methane. It's not to say carbon and methane doesn't contribute to the thinning of the ozone layer because it does. But the bigger problem is the geoengineering, what they're doing out of space in terms of weaponizing, you know, the the, uh, the the weather for the sole purpose in terms of domination of the world. So clearly, you know, you know, this is something that's been in, something they've been planning for a long, long time, and it's just come to fruition. So, so you know, so you know, so when it's question in terms of organization, you know, there is there are no shortcuts. You know, either we as a people are going to get organized or we're not. If we're not, there are repercussions to at play here. There's a price to pay because we're not organized. So I can't put it any simpler than that. But I think that, you know, when we when we talk about in terms of, you know, this propensity that exists among government officials, you know, uh, whether they be, you know, in the U.S., whether it be in the U.K., whether it be Australia, South, or wherever, uh, it's quite pronounced. They do a very good job in terms of communicating, you know, uh, in, in what they perceive as, as problems to their continued, you know, uh, domination of the world's economy and world's resources. So clearly they do a lot of talking in terms of making sure that they're on point in terms of innovating technology that they perceive is in the best interest of the ruling class. You know, panelists, um, that was another article of interest uh, I'd like to share with with you and the listener audience and maybe have some discussion on why it was important for someone to publish and print this particular article. And what does it mean for African people who live in outside of Africa? Now, this article is titled, Twitter, CEO Wants to Make to Africa. Twitter, CEO Wants to Move to Africa, which will define the future. Uh, as a writer, to- Toby Snapstack. Now, in this article, a really short article, but just question I'm raising is, why was this article even written? What's the importance of it? And maybe what is the implication of this? Now, in this article, it states, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey met entrepreneurs in Ethiopia on his month-long trip to Africa. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey planned to move to Africa next year for three to six months, he said, after a month-long trip to entrepreneurial hubs on the continent. Said to be leaving the continent for now, Dorsey tweeted, <coughs> excuse me, Africa will define the future, respectively. The big car one. Not sure where yet, but I'll be living now for three to six months. Mid 2020, 
grateful I was able to experience a small part. He has spent a month of November visiting entrepreneurs in Ethiopia, Ghana, Nigeria, South Africa. What's the significance of why someone may have published this article, panelists? I think they uh I think it's a sign that that the, the that the the ruling bourgeoisie is more interested in making sure they control Africa's resources. One of the things that struck me when I read this article is that all the countries he visited are under neocolonial domination. In other words, they, uh, their economies are externally controlled by imperialism, and I think and and the imperialists want to intensify that control because Africa has the resources needed uh, for for the industries of the future, particularly electronics and telecommunications. It has the largest reserves of those materials that are needed. And I think, and I think that's why, uh, you know, the uh, the capitalists are doing everything to make sure that Africa does not become independent and liberated. Yeah, one one thing one thing is one thing is sure. Africa doesn't need a damn tweet. <laughs> I mean, that's for sure. So I think it has. I think his visit there has more to do in terms of innovating certain technology. For the sole purpose of more effectively spying on what's going on among the citizenry in Africa, uh, we talked about the fact that you know that the West, the Western leaders, do a pretty good job in terms of planning well in advance. One of the things in installation of certain technologies in Africa will make it much more easier, much more effective, in terms of being able to monitor what people are doing, what people are saying, and what people are thinking. So I think that's the biggest motivation in terms of what they're doing. I, I, I think that is, is a sort of precursor. Uh, to more effective in terms of imperialism, you know, just on the continent. So African leaders have to be very, very careful in terms of falling for that trap under the guise of, you know, innovative, you know, technology. Uh, because if it, if it doesn't benefit economically, uh, it simply benefit uh, some for this, in terms of, you know, being able to provide, you know, uh, um, uh, better tweets, then I don't think that's something that is a priority as far as, you know, Africa's concerns uh, uh, are. So I, I think that his, his I think his realization is that he understands that you know change is inevitable, and they want to stay in front of that change. And, and the only way they can stay in front of that change is to make sure they know what everybody's thinking, where they are, and what they're doing, so forth and so on. In terms of you know you know Twitter and so and accounts and other kind of community um, you know systems, uh, which is geared toward in terms of, of elevating you know communications. So I'm not optimistic that his intent is a good one. I'm just hoping that the African leaders, you know, see through it, and 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 and, and you know, and if if, you're, if he's interested in terms of enha- you know enhancing, you know, Africa's infrastructure, then all all the all the all the better. But if he's interested in simply something as simplistic as a tweet, then that he can keep. Well, you know, my position when I saw one word in this article, I think it, it told the whole story. His emphasis of creating entrepreneurship is just another form, another word of capitalism. And we know that Africa does not need no more capitalism. It has too much. We know capitalism is the enemy to our people, our development, and our freedom. So 
you know, clearly that's what he coming to bring. So, but mm. you know, I just uh, I just thought it was interesting. Yes, brother Jabari, you have something you'd like to say? Given that Africans are the biggest cultural exporters, at some point, given the way that um, Western society profits from African culture, at some point you're going to have to go where it originated and have an even bigger stronghold there. So as Brother Anthony said, they have a very rich infrastructure, and that's clearly evidenced in terms of how well Africans do when it comes to engineering and technology arena. And let me preface these comments with one example. I'm not sure how many people have heard of this gentleman, but Idris Sandu is a Nigerian um, young adult in his 20s, and he's one of the people that was able to develop the algorithm for Instagram. He's also coded for Snapchat as well. And Mr. Sandu did not go to a four-year college because he said that he was unable to afford it, and he also wanted to get more hands-on because he had the knowledge in terms of being able to work in the technology arena. And he was doing this as a teenager and even had the experience of um, working at Google for a certain time during his teen years. And yet he did all this, like I said, anywhere from between 13 to 21 years of age, he was able to do this and still continue to make strides in the tech world. So if you have prodigies like Mr. Sandu, he's just one example, and there are others that um, haven't been tapped into. It's clear that you want access to knowledge because there's money in having the knowledge to be able to advance the technology. It's interesting to raise that example, Jabari, because years back, a year or so back, I also read, uh, read um, some information on the ingenuousness and creativity of African people, I think, in Sudan or the Congo, where they have already developed, you know, these cars that can run by sunlight and batteries. And and I know that uh, many of the manufacturing companies were in there trying to buy up the, the, the copyright, the patent, or they cut some kind of deal with the young people who dis- who discovered this technology. And I think they may have brought them out outright where they were totally controlled it for the next 50 to 100 years. So it does show you that uh, the creativity and geniuses of African people continue today and we can develop and do for ourselves if, if, if given the means and the opportunity to do it. Um, so anybody else would like to speak to this whole question? Um, you know, this question of the CEO coming to Africa and its impact that may have on Africa and our people. If not, before we just get out, listen to what you something to think about, what we're going to do right now, you listen to Africa on the Move. We've been discussing what's going on in your world community. We're going to pause for this calls right now. And when we come back, we're going to continue to tell the truth and we continue to fight for freedom. That's our theme tonight. We're going to talk about the assassination about 50 years ago of our beloved brother Fred Hampton. You ought to listen to Africa on the Move, and we'll be right back.
If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. You listen to some sound of sweet liberation. Right now, we'd like to go into our transition of the second half of our program, which will deal with our theme tonight as we talk about telling the truth and fighting for freedom. That's right. Some of us, most of us, don't have no freedom. We need our freedom. So in this context of this particular thing, that was a really interesting article we'd like to bring to your attention that was written on December 4th, 2019, out of of Punch, um, titled, Rest in Peace, Fred Hampton, a black visionary assassinated by the FBI by Jefferson Morley. If you get a chance, check the article out. But meanwhile, we will discuss it. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to call in at 323-679-0841 and hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers where you can make a comment or raise your question. Panelists, been a little over maybe 50 years of the anniversary of the assassination of our brother Fred Hampton. From this article, certain things come to mind is the systematic oppression of African people through force or assassination, the systematic method of constantly organizing through federal agencies to oppress our people, and one particular um, word when someone here called to a pro, it was um, a concept that came to existence to ensure the African people would not arrive at any kind of level of consciousness, level of organization where African people can free themselves. Brother Anthony, 
Rest in peace, Fred Hampton, a black visionary assassinated by the FBI. And when you talk about the FBI, we also talk about in association with the CIA. In this article, it was stated that this program, Cointel Pro, comes out of the program, the direction of the Central Intelligence Agency. So, Brother Anthony, what do you take from this article? Lessons of interest, interest and lessons that we should learn from. Right. Well, uh, well, let's see. The uh, the FBI saw Fred Hampton as a threat because of his work to galvanize not only Africans but also uh, the uh, the indigenous people, Asians, and uh, Europeans uh, in this hemisphere, particularly in the. In, in in Chicago, he was working. Uh, he was working on that. As a matter of fact, he came up with the term "rainbow coalition" before Jesse Jackson, you know, you know, had used it. Uh, nearly twenty years later in his uh, presidential uh, campaigns. So, um, you know, so I think you know, um, you know, this effort to undermine. Uh, you know, leadership, and I think it's significant that he was that he was 21, and he had already been involved in organizing for several years, which means he was a teen when he started his political activity. And um, he reminds me of the brother that recruited him to the Black Panther Party, which this article doesn't mention, but Bob Brown had also got his start. In political activism as a teenager As a matter of fact He um, he participated in a walkout Of high school students Out, out of uh, the school system in Chicago A few years earlier But this article doesn't mention that But that's why Fred Hampton Left the NAACP Because he didn't feel it was It, it was adequate uh, To the problems that African people were facing during that time And I think It is very significant That at that stage In his life he had he understood The necessity importance Of organization and Also the necessity of um, Building bridges With people that were that, that were facing similar situations To what we are Thank you brother Andrew. Brother Aki Speaking truth to power, what did you take from this article? <clears throat> well, I, I think that um, Brother Fred Hampton uh, did a wonderful, wonderful work in terms of his ability to organize people across the political spectrum. I mean, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, and, and I was particularly impressed with his organization around, you know, getting gangs, you know, uh, <clears throat> to involve themselves in terms of, you know, political, political struggle. So that in of itself is a very it's an achievement because when you think about gangs, you know uh, one of the things that uh, gangs are notorious for, and that's about you know uh, the um, the possibility of making money, and so therefore to get the gangs to put aside that 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 uh, uh, pursuit of money for noble good uh, or noble you know uh, was uh, speaks values in terms of Fred Hampton's ability to organize. And I, I got to admit that he, you know, he single-handedly almost, I, w- I believe that, 
you know, he was instrumental and, and, and you know, in terms of, you know, um, you know, um, putting, you know, bringing, you know, bringing some, 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 some recognition that, uh, that a lot of the, uh, politics affiliated with, you know, um, nonviolence, I think he, he, he sort of made it clear that sometime in terms of giving the conditions, that nonviolence may not be appropriate in terms of as, as a response. And one of the things, I mean, you advocate in terms of carrying guns, in other words, what you're saying is that you won't be intimidated, you know, by law enforcement, that you have the right to defend yourself, and you will, in fact, defend yourself. So that in of itself spoke volumes. So I think from that, I think, you know, the, particularly the left, the, the, the left or white, the white left, I think it sort of took a cue in terms of his seriousness. I think so. When you look at a situation where you know the weather underground in terms of desire, you know, not only to defend you know, African people's right in terms of self determination or defend themselves against police violence, but in fact to actually you know um, blow up uh, police cars, you know, uh, in defense of uh, or in, of uh, Fred Hampton speaks values in terms of how much you know they respected what Fred Hampton was all about. So Freddie Hampton was clearly unique. I mean, he was very, very special, and uh, he, he attended grad, you know, uh, he attended college. You know, he's a very gifted student in high school. He was an intelligent young man, and the mere fact that he's able to somehow bridge, you know, the teachings of Malcolm X with the National NAACP, speak values in terms of his understanding, in terms of what it takes, in terms of reaching a broad mass of our people, is not is not an easy, easy feat. But he was able to do that. So he was outstanding in terms of his ability of organizing. And Brother Zubavish, what did you take from this article? What I take from this article is that those persons that seek to discredit his legacy are not people that have a short-term memory. Because one thing you have to um, look at recently is that um, I had an opportunity to listen to an interview that his son, Fred Hampton Jr., was doing in reference to how his childhood home they're trying to um, take and put it up for auction. Fortunately, for the time being, through the through the efforts and organization of his son, they've been able to maintain the property, but unfortunately it's continued um, emphasis on, for whatever reason, trying to... Um, those that are counter that are counterproductive to Fred Hampton message trying to get possession of the property, then that will be history lost as we see time and time again when it comes to people of color. So it's clear there's a lot about his legacy they don't want to be known as they help connect the dots of what they don't tell you in terms of history. Thank you, Barbara. And Brother Moses, what do you take from this article? Okay, we're going to come back to Brother Moses. But in terms of looking at this article, um, and from a historical perspective, we're looking at African people pressure within the border of the U.S. There has been many institutions and tools used to oppress African people and many people of color, etc. Uh, maybe, Brother Anthony, you can start off. Can you talk about what is this concept called Cortel Pro? That still exist today, or are there just new new tools uh, being used to do the same thing? Uh, it still exists today, and as the article indicated, it was originated with the CIA. 
and um, and uh, it started out as an illegal program to open the mail of U.S. citizens in 1957. He fed the results to uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who at that time was the director of the FBI. And that's how and methods for quote neutralizing unquote perceived enemies. So uh so that's how COINTELPRO got started and uh it continues to this day, even though according to the article, the current director of the FBI, um uh, Ray ha- uh t- uh you know uh to, uh, told them that uh, that uh, Asians are required to study uh, COINTELPRO to learn what not to do. So according to this article, the FBI doesn't engage in assassinations uh, now, but apparently they did during uh, during one of the, uh, the, uh, the during the civil rights era. Uh, because of Stephen CIA that assassinated uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, one of the ways they try to undermine our efforts at organization is to try to um, uh, kill off our political leadership. Brother Haki, when you look at the behavior of the Coincheo Pro Program, and we look at the various institutions, was the Central Intelligence Agency, et cetera, these are federal institutions in which your taxpayer money goes into to have function. Is that a serious conflict of interest as it relates to this whole so-called issue of being a citizen of a country and a contradiction in terms of um, looking at this concept that they call a democracy? How do you take money from the same people and then turn around use as a tool to oppress and kill them. Yes, one of those uh, one of those paradoxes that exists in society. And so when we talk about the amount of hypocrisy that exists, you know, in Western society, it's tremendous. And so clearly, you know, when you talk about the Constitution, you talk about people's right to express themselves or freedom of expression, uh, since when does someone simply, simply articulating the discontent with poverty or lack of housing or lack of food or lack of shelter, since when does one equate that to being a bad guy? So the mere fact that they can take your dollars from the citizenry then turn around and use those same dollars in terms of the oppression of the same citizenry when they dare speak out speaks values in terms of just how corrupt, just how vile the system is. But we can't divorce ourselves from the fact that when we, when we talk about these hypocrisies that we have to understand essentially what we're talking about, we're talking about capitalism. And so the whole point is that if capitalism understands that it's fundamentally and inherently unjust, and as such, injustice breeds, you know, uh, breeds, injustice breeds, um, um, uh, in, a, in a word, injustice breeds a, a revolution. And so, therefore, they're always mindful of the fact, you know, that the, given the level of content that exists out here, uh, that they, they can't afford the opportunity or luxury of setting back and saying, you know that uh, free speech doesn't constitute an, 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 a, a real threat to the uh, longevity of the system, and so therefore any kind of speech, in their minds, justify the the oppression that should be waged against such speech. 
So clearly, you know, we got the situation in terms of the Constitution on one hand, and on the other hand, we got these intelligence agencies that, that operate totally independent in terms of what the laws are. And even though the current FBI director talks about the fact that he wants his agents to study Quintel Pro so that, to see what's legally admissible and permissible and what's not, the reality is that even if they're not talking about Quintel Pro, they're talking about their black identity extremists. In other words, they continue to create methods to justify the exploitation and oppression of African people, particularly when it comes to their right to express discontent with the way the government is run. So clearly this kind of hypocrisy, this, this paradox that we're, that we're talking about is part and parcel of capitalism, and no one should be surprised at all, uh, you know, that on one hand they talk about, you know, being free, and on the other hand one of the most oppressive nations on the planet Earth uh, being the United States of America. Brother Moses and Brother Anthony, um, now I can take a lead on this question. One of the lessons or issues that came from this article was raised not only in the context of this example, but most examples of the killing of African people leadership is that no one has been even today um, being held accountable for free and Hampton death for others. What do you make of that, Brother Moses? And Brother Anthony. I think I think it's a, a, a example of the oppressive system that we're living in, the exploitive system that we're living in. That uh, you know people can get away, you know the cop killings and different things, uh, get away with assassinating and murdering people of color. Uh, it's you know, it's part of the system that we're, the power system that we're stuck with until it's gotten rid of it and it won't topple by itself. And uh, so this political economy of capitalism uh, uh, resorts to oppression and repression and and, and uh, government programs like COINTELPRO People take it upon themselves to initiate from their position of power, uh, initiate the oppression, and uh, it may be legal, it may be illegal. Ultimately, found to be, found to be, but you know that's that's history. Uh, Hoover was no joke. He he was about killing black leadership, and that's. You know, anybody who was conscious was subject to be assassinated. Uh, and so that's the kind of uh, institutions that, that have institutionalized racism and that has been um, embedded in this system from its beginning and continues. Thank you. You know, Brother Anthony, one of the things they talk about is uh, this question of plausible deniability in an indirect way by making the point that it was an FBI to carry out this order, but they used local policemen to implement it. Um, you'll make up that, uh, uh, that particular phenomenon? Yes, they used local police to do it. And also, they, and also I think uh, we have to be very cognizant of people that are doing anything for money. Uh, those those are very dangerous because they'll sell themselves and other people 
to the highest bidder. Now, one of the things that came out of this article was the fact the FBI had inserted an informant, William O'Neill, into the Panther organization. And he was the one who had given uh, the layout of um, the apartment uh, to, you know, to the police. And they uh, and they were able to, uh, and and that's how that they were they they were a, they were able to um, uh, carry out their assassination of uh, Fred Hampton, and uh, uh, and the other brother. Um, And uh, and also uh, and also place uh, you know uh, place uh, Fred Hampton's wife in danger, even though uh, you know she wasn't injured, but she was traumatized by that because uh, she was left uh, you know to um, you know to deal with the bills and also to try to raise uh, their son by herself. Yeah, um, listen to the audience, you listen to After Go to the Moon, we're talking about 50 years ago, the anniversary of the assassination of Fred Hampton, um, if you have any views or comments on that, you're welcome to call in, and when you call in, please hit 1, you call 323 if you take your comments, call, we have a caller, we want to make a comment, let's go to call us 7244. Call us 7244. Your question, comment, please. Uh, hello, family. How's everybody? Peace and power. This is your brother. Hello, family. how you doing? How's it? Good, good. Doing just fine, sir. Um, well, uh, a great discussion as we are speaking about the likes of uh, Fred Hampton. Also, when we look at uh, the Black Panther Party, you know, and what, what they did, what they have done, and even now, um, with the current Black Panther Party that we have in place, you know, what they are doing. So we definitely appreciate the, the vitality of uh, that good spirit that we saw inside certain rebels like Fred Hampton, uh, Stokely Carmichael. We we appreciate, you know, that, that, that spirit that was in those youth. Those were young men, uh, might I add, and fast forward to where we are today. And it's rare that you see the populace of our black um, children speaking about the likes of Fred Hampton, uh, speaking about Malcolm X. Um, What you see is a more pacified image, uh, like Martin Luther King uh, being promoted. And it's okay to like those types of figures, but whenever we start to like or look at the importance of lifting up and honoring people like Fred Hampton, people like Marcus Garvey, that's when you start to get over into that rebel, uh, you know, rebellious, revolutionary type of Negro. And that is something that America has never favored. America has never liked the rebellious Negro. That's when we start to think about a nation within a nation. How well would that work out? A nation allowing another nation to be successful and run within that. And we think about Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, Raleigh, Durham, all those times where we as black people, we had the the, the keys. And we were unlocking our future, unlocking our social status, 
but even America and its, you know, forces, they didn't favor this. You understand? They did not favor this. Um, so I, I think it is very important that we continue this discussion. Speaking speaking about those revolutionaries, those people that were the rebels that caused a level of thinking, you know, that we are now presented with as it relates to going against the system, going against the status quo, going against the way we have normally been educated, trying to find ourselves in, in doing that in a very revolutionary way. So so I, I, I myself, I do appreciate, you know, those people, uh, like I said, in, in this case, Fred Hampton, that definitely laid down their lives, sacrificed uh, for uh, the quality of life for black folk, you know, and looking at us as black people, we are sacrificed for a check today. We are sacrificed for anything outside of who we genuinely are. And Dr. John Henry Clark asked a very great question that a lot of people, black people, could care less about. But he said, who would speak for Africa in the 21st century? And thinking about the current dynamic of where we were at a pinnacle of discussion of where those scholars had done the research, brought us back a lot of information to even help us validate who we really were, all to say that we are now met with a conversation that where I can't be African long enough before I have another genetically proven African telling me, hey, I'm an Indian, or hey, I'm Indian, you know, all this discussion. Like I said, this is definitely a very important time to lift up those revolutionaries, lift up those people that didn't have a problem with 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 crossing, you know, making that mark in the sand and showing who they belong to. What this is going to be the importance. Our young men, they have to know that they are men. Not well, hey, I wonder if I'm a man or I'm a woman. No, we have to know that we are men. We have to know that hey, I'm a black man. So there's a list of instructions. There's a list of processes that go for your survival here. You understand? And I think this is an honest discussion. So I thank those brothers. I thank you all for having the constant conversation that is allowing, you know, us as, uh, us as black people, us as Africans, to elevate ourselves. So thank you. Brother, we thank you for your contribution to this program and others. Uh, we'll leave you on. we keep you in the loop. So anytime you want to say something, yes, sir. just come on in. You know your family. Yes, sir. Yes, okay. sir. Okay. Uh, let, 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 let me, brother Albert, let me, let me weigh in, weigh in real quickly. Take a sort of opposite try, uh, uh, tact in terms of what the brothers raising in terms of the, the, what, the revolutionary nature of, you know, of, of African people, or at least what we should be. Uh, interesting that one of the things in terms of J. A. V. Hoover, one of the things is he was uh, preoccupied with was the Black Messiah. Mm, his right. notion that his notion that, that 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 African people were close close to close to 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 God, and that if anybody can bring people together, it would be a black person or an mm-hmm. African person. And so, therefore, in his mind, it's important that any time an African expressed or have those characteristics where he's eloquent or where he's charismatic. We actually communicate well, then that person in Jacob's super mind become a intrinsic threat. And one of the things that's interesting, though, on two occasions, Brother Africa, I was on planes in which uh, I was greeted by some white individuals. 
uh, in particular was the white females. And I was like, I'm thinking to myself, so why are you greeting me, dude? I don't know you. I mean, you don't know me, I don't know you, so why are you greeting me, you know? And uh, on both occasions, they both said, I'm so happy that you're on the plane. I'm like, you're happy I'm on the plane. That was very interesting. And uh, so I thought about that. And one of the things that was clear to me, you know, in talking to a, another young white lady, uh, the, the question arose in terms of how white folks see African people. They see African people as more godly, closer to God. And so, so for the implication being that, you know, by, you being, by me being on the plane, that uh, it's less likely that the plane will go down in flames because the creator will protect, protect the plane because I'm on it. So this whole question in terms of the black messiah is a constant theme in, in terms of white America, and it's very, very interesting. Uh, in other words, J. Edgar Hoover understands that a lot of things that the system fundamentally does are intrinsically wrong, and he understands that. And so, therefore, you know, he, I mean, you look at the, 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 the example of historical Jesus in terms of the role he played in terms of getting people to confront that which is wrong. He sees that envisioned in African people. And so, therefore, anybody who potentially can bring about clarity, bring about light uh, to the masses of people, our people and others, then are a fundamental, as far as J. Edgar Hoover was concerned, a fundamental threat to the system. So I find that very, very interested in terms of, you know, uh, you know what motivated uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who happens to be, you know, a gay guy. So I thought that very, very interesting. And, and Brother Africa, if you don't mind, could I, could I please? You know, just, yeah, the mic just, is just yours, add something. The mic is yours. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, okay, I just wanted to say that what the brother just brought up, and that was, you know, a point that I meant to bring, and we just saw it kind of resurfacing, right? We saw it play back up in the what they call the BIE, Black Identity Extremist, right? Movement, and these are actually groups in which tax dollars are going to these, you know, the Black Identity Extremists, you know, just to, 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 to go out and, and probe what we are talking about and, and the nature of our conversation as being people that identify with black power. Even with what the Panthers were saying, it wasn't the one that, you know, was met like how the opposition was with white power, right? White power, we know that they go around, they're not talking about getting themselves out of any, any unjust situation. They're already people that come from money, so they are ones that are greedy. They want to keep their foot on your neck, so therefore they're saying, well, hey, we want to kill you Negroes. And just imagine how long that rhetoric had been promoted and still is promoted because the number one gang in America is the Aryan Brotherhood. So they talk all this stuff about the Bloods and the Crips and this. The Aryan Brotherhood is the greatest, biggest gang organized crime, right? But a lot of times their BS goes under the radar, but then when we are saying hotel and we're going in to grab our roots and identify with ourselves, they're wanting the wrong us where they're putting tax dollars, you know, in a place where we're, where, who's the one that's going out killing these kids in school or doing all this crazy domestic terrorism? It isn't black folks. You understand? These are white boys. But this is the same America that want to make our children the thugs, for no reason, you know, again, because this young man is speaking in a, such a, a, a dominant manner, in such an authoritative way, he, he's wrong, you know, but this little boy over here talking about wearing a dress, or we have this other guy over here talking about selling drugs to his community, i.e. Jay-Z, he, you can become a billionaire, right? But when you start to 
stand up and say, well, hey, I care about myself. I care about my people. Let's start to protect the quality of life. We want clean drinking water. We want good food. That's when you are a problem. And you are a problem to America because America has been the one that has always came up off of the back of us being feeble-minded, us being docile, us being weak. And when whenever we start to promote this rhetoric, talking about we can do, thinking about out of all stories we can get out of the Bible, clinging on to David and Goliath, talking about, hey, how we can come overcome this thing, you know, how we can take it back over. You know, that's the thing that, like the brother said, a Messiah or that type of mentality is the one that they definitely come after quicker than they come after the, the white boy that's actually hanging Negroes and actually linked to a lineage confederate flag waving KKK. Now they go after us and then they leave them alone. They let them be and let them, you know, build bombs and plot plans on schools and all this stuff. But then we say, and this I, I think is, you know, shining light on what J. Edgar Hoover started and what they were actually allotting tax dollars to say that, hey, we're going over here to stop these Negroes for, from feeling good about themselves. When we weren't talking about killing anybody, we were talking about feeling good about ourselves. Well, you know, panelists, uh, one of the questions uh, that Tupac raised with us, and I'd like for y'all to weigh in on this, and his question was, he stated that the greatest thug and gangster in this country was the U.S. government. Y'all response right. was too too pop incorrect with his analysis. Uh, right. Looking uh, at U.S. history, I would say he was he was correct. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I mean, if you look at uh, you know the nearly five centuries of uh, terrorism that we've been subject to. Uh, and also, uh, you know, and, and the damage that imperialism has done around the world, especially to Africans and Asians and the indigenous people around the world. Uh, you know, I would say his observation is very correct. Anyone else would like to respond yeah, to this well, statement? Yeah, well, like gangster, Haki. Thug, ter- well gangster, thug, terrorist, ticket pick. The bottom line is that the history of the United States is replete, replete with all kind of barbarity. And so this notion that it says that it's somehow the United States is wholesome, that it's just and fair, is, is ironic. So it only has legitimacy to the extent that it's, willing, it, it, it's a position to create documents which, which essentially lies. And one of the biggest lies in terms of the origin of human beings, and we talk about the origin of human beings in terms of, in terms of going back to Africa, so we understand that any time we talk about this artificial uh, distinction that exists between people based upon skin color, we understand it's an artificial distinction. But we understand it only has legitimacy to the extent that the West has been very good in terms of deceiving people around, you know, the origin of human beings. So when we talk about this criminal propensity that exists among the minds of the West, it's very, very well documented. And it's not to say that the masses of, of people, you know, throughout the West are all criminal-minded. But clearly, when we talk about you know, governmental structures and we talk about the evolution of those governmental structures in terms of their willingness to kill, to destroy, um, to lie, to manipulate, uh, to do anything in terms of all costs and in terms of pursuit of power, then clearly we got a problem. And those who take a position that, in fact, the pursuit of power is just a human phenomenon, of course it is. But the mere fact 
that when you when you pursue power to the extent that not only are you talking about the elimination of, of millions and millions of people, but you're talking about the elimination of, of, of the planet itself, then fundamentally you have a problem. And so therefore this this reluctance of the West to even deal with the fact that there's spiritually, not even spiritually, but, but just politically, there is a problem in terms of how you see the world. You have a situation throughout the world where people of people of color uh, who create social systems would say that you know, the good, of the, the good of society is best served when everybody in that society has access to what they need. Well, of course, the West come along and say, no, 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 no. We don't believe in the good of the society. We only believe in the good of an individual. And so, therefore, we're willing to wreck and destroy in terms of seeing having our way. And so, as a consequence, throughout the world, you have places like Cuba, or Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, places which, which try to implement socialism, who are under attack by, by the, particularly the United States, Simply because they simply wanted to do that was right and just. Uh, so clearly, this 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 irony in terms of you know uh, on one hand saying that uh, you were about good, that you're about freedom and fair and, and fair play and justice, and then the actual practice in terms of destructiveness, uh, selfishness, uh, uh, avarice. Uh, you know, it 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 doesn't bode well in terms of as a critique. And so therefore, it seems to me that at some point. You know, the West has to wake up and say, take a hard, good hard look at itself and say, wait a minute, am I, is the West really a, a wholesome place? Is it really about justice, fairness, equity? Is it really about those things that make human beings whole, or is it about something else? So that's, that's, you know, so that's my position on the Brother Africa. You know, I, I think that when, when Tupac says that it's, it's the most criminal enterprise the world has ever known, no question about that. And when you talk about this, the, the drug trade in terms of, you know, how the drug trade got its start and who, who benefits from the drug trade and how it proliferates, then it's very, very clear that the West is behind that as well. So clearly Tupac is absolutely correct. And I don't think anybody who understands the history of human beings can say with a straight face that when we talk about the, the, the sheer criminality, you know, uh, in terms of culture, no one can say with a straight face that the, that the West isn't guilty of criminal causability. And, and, me weighing in, I definitely have to agree with all the elders that spoke before me. And, um, you know, I guess because uh, I think Thug pointed to a violent person or a criminal. But I think, you know, the, 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 the lineage in which the European is tied to as it relates specifically to what it has done to us as African, us as black people is far more hideous than any criminal that I know is far more hideous than any uh, violent attack that I know of. And another word that I was met with, um, even when you look at um, Christopher Columbus, uh, they pride themselves that, you know, I think these were people that were ousted. And it's a proud, it was a proud colonizer. And what is a colonizer? We, We think about somebody that is going to come into somebody else's home and he's going to make that his his own. And that's when you think about communism. That's when you think about those very uh, sentiments in which you, you think are wayward from American government are the very founding principles of, of this place. And um, all it is is that it's basically just pushed under the rug and when we think about any type of mafia, Jewish mafia, Mexican mafia, Italian mafia, the 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 mafia that we see that 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 is brought to us by the American government 
is one that is very, very deep. It is one that I'm going to say doesn't necessarily always have white folk driving the vehicle, but they definitely have white supremacy in mind, okay? You could have a black person driving the vehicle, but he knows exactly where he's going, and it's nowhere, you know, to any African or black liberation, you understand? So that's why this thing is a whole lot, you know, trickier than just normal thuggery, right? Because normal thuggery, it may come in the package of a violent thug or, you know, a known criminal, but this level is is so tricky because it could come in the fashion of an old grandma or somebody, but she could be just as much, you know, uh, you know, part of the plan as that criminal is. So I, I think it's it's a it's a deep thing, you know. When we're saying thugs, criminal activity, yeah, this America is linked to all of that. So you know, I'm basically agreeing with everybody, and Tupac didn't say, excuse me for saying a damn thing wrong. You know, you know, Carla. One of the things uh, I want to pick back on your um, the last point is this question of when we read the article, and maybe Brother Tabari or Brother Moses, y'all can take the lead and discuss it and get y'all spin on it. He talk about how they communicate to codes. How to use certain words to um, mean certain things. Now the word neutralize. They use the word neutralize, and when you look at it in context of how it was used as a form of code to assassinate or to kill. So uh, why is it important, uh, maybe Tabari? What do you make of in terms of how you view this whole concept of uses of words and terminologies, and even the concept of neutralize? How did you apply that? When you read it and um, did your self-assessment, Brother Tabari and Moses? Let me preface my comments by saying one thing you have to understand when it comes to Western societies, in regards to those they're opposed to, they have a certain lexicon they use. And for any letter of the alphabet, it's going to be a certain demonizing term they use from A to Z. So this is nothing new in terms of that. But when you talk about this word neutralize, that means there's somebody that's in opposition to me, somebody that's counterintuitive to my interests, somebody that I want to take out with reckless abandon by whatever is in my arsenal, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical, whether it's more on an ideological basis. The point is to get them out of the way as soon as possible and to stymie anyone that will want to follow them or will already follow them or maybe even co-opt them. Point well made. Moses, your take on this concept of neutralizing someone? What do you think it meant to you? Yeah, certainly definitely means uh, uh, they're going to sleep with the birds. Uh, they're going to be killed uh, uh, with extreme prejudice or whatever. Uh, uh, these are terms, you know, they use to, uh, to disguise what their real intents are. But, but you know, you you can you can uh, do it without doing it. Sooner or later, the words take on their significance. And uh, you know, I, I want to say that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said this country is the greatest purveyor of violence on the face of the earth, and so, you know, we've been faced with this for years. Thank you. 
And Ed Yupumu's P.D. Tosh also asked a question in the context of everybody talking about crime, but tell me who are the real criminals. And every time we're African people talk about crime and talk about this petty crime within our community, they never really want to talk about and discuss who are the real criminals. So anyway, panelists, um, any final thoughts on this article before we take our station break? And we'll move, move on to climate change, climate and the poor. So any final thoughts on this article, panelists? Well, I I just like to say um, on the neutralization, um, you know, just to neutralize that that is a thing of being, um, you know, in inside the definition of core at the core, basically meaning to be impartial, or you know, and and I think that's where us as a people, and and you think about America, America has never been neutral. When you think about if anybody has is going to uh, do something to America. Imagine the time that America is going to be neutral, right? And you know, when when an infraction or something has been done to America, neutrality wouldn't even be on it. They're actually going to go and fight. They're going to get retribution. They're going to get payback, right? But when it comes down to us, and as it relates to us talking about liberation, how do we get our forty acres in a mule? How do we get more than that? How do we even talk about reparations? This is a one that neutrality or, or being neutral, neutralizing is a thing that we have been, but it's something that's not going to work for us. You know, this this would be the thing that, that caps the revolutionary. This would be the thing that caps the warrior mentality and makes that just a docile component rather than being an agent or advocate for pushing for the betterment of a person or people. Hence, Therefore, we are still having to engage in, in marches and movements, free this person or black people being thrown in jail for years for, you know, not having a wrongful conviction. conviction. We have uh, the brothers and sisters that are getting shot down by police. This is being the, it's the only the same thing that we had to discuss in, in yesterday's. And I think our neutrality to be neutralized is the thing that only brought us to a place where we are having to solve or figure out how we're going to solve the same problems as we had yesterday. Anybody else? Final thoughts on this article? Yes. I think um, I think the, the most important thing that people need to remember about Fred Hampton and, and, uh, and the youth of his generation is that they tried uh, you know, to make that contribution to our liberation struggle, and the emphasis that uh, that Fred Hampton attached to being organized, I think those are some of the most important lessons to take uh, from this article, and the fact that uh, that in terms of um, you know holding on to power, then me is relentless. Okay, uh, just as a summary in terms of the assassination of Perry Hampton as well as another uh, brother in the house who was Mark Clark, I think. After Mark Clark, Trump. yeah. Earlier, yeah. They both were assassinated about 50 years ago on December the 4th. And um, this pattern continues today. It's just a question now as they oppress people, how do we organize ourselves to put a stop to it? And that's the million-dollar question, and only going to be 
uh, resolve through some form of organization. So Africans, we must get organized. So right now you are listening to Africa on the Move. We are addressing our theme tonight, telling the truth and fighting for freedom. We'll be right back. We're going to pause for a call. When we come back, we're going to talk about this whole issue of the climate, the whole issue of climate and the poor. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move. Punch, 
which was titled Wealthy Countries' Approach to Climate Change, condemns hundreds of millions of people to suffer. Now, you talk about warfare, everything is apart. It can be used as a tool to either be positive or negative. You see, capitalism has now used the art of the weather to act as an instrument of oppression. Brother Haki, we talk about this whole question of uh, weather, the weather, the issue of climate change, its impact on oppressed poor countries. What was the major thrust of this article when you read this that we can learn from Brother Haki? Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the main points of contention was this question around the Rio Earth Summit that was conducted back in 1992. And it talked about the Green Climate Fund. Uh, in other words, this was a fund that was set up for the Global South. Uh, in other words, uh, just those non-European countries. Uh, it was set up so as Western nations would fund, you know, um, these these countries. So the purpose to make it possible for them to acquire the kind of technology they need in terms of being able to feed and provide for their populace. And of course, the U.S. pledged uh, three billion dollars, but of course, they only gave one billion dollars. And, and as a matter of fact. Uh, the orange menace decided that he's going to withdraw from the program totally. So the mere fact that the West's uh, exportation, you know, of the global south, uh, the stealing of his resources, uh, the impoverishment of those countries, uh, left them ill-equipped in terms of actually dealing with global global temperature change. But the mere fact that the West played a big part in terms of making that possible, they are now reneged on responsibility in terms of assisting the global south in terms of, you know, alternative uh, technologies the sole purpose, you know, of fighting the climate change. So I think that um, uh, this 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 kind of uh, this kind of uh, um, mean spiritedness uh, continue to persist uh, even when it come to um, come to um, you know global warming. But you know the, the irony is that you know uh, you know the the West itself, you know uh, what affects one part of the world affects the globe the global the global north as well. So the notion that uh, they refuse to 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 assist you know the global south in terms of new technologies uh, only underscores you know to willing to the extent they're willing to destroy themselves. So it's very ironic, I think. And brother Anthony, the point that you take, or the points that you take from this particular article, there's a significance that have significance for people to know uh, what points. Yes. Um... Capitalism caused uh, the climate change crisis. I think that's what's the, the mo- most important point. I mean, um, a system in which a very small uh, amount of people consume the bulk of the planet's resources is going to wreak havoc on the planet eventually. And, uh, you know, from, from a philosophical standpoint, more importantly, it was it was uh, the the rate that that brought about that colonialism that made possible the wealth that uh, you know Europe and and North America you know benefit from now and also and also those uh, those con- the poorer countries of the world do not have the resources to develop uh, their economies through alternate means without the technology, wind and solar technology that, that, that was developed in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, so that needs to be shared. But uh, because of capitalism's monopolistic nature, 
they, uh, you, you know, that, uh, you, you know, everything is uh, for sale or for profit. And so what's, uh, you know, in it for the individual corporation attitude. And also, uh, and also the necessity of phasing out uh, carbon-based fuels, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's critically important that that's done as soon as possible. But again, there are certain, uh, you know, interests that make money off of uh, fossil-based fuels, and they don't want to see that go away. So it's a very big problem, and the solution ha- has to be socialism. Okay, thank you. And Jabari, you take from this article is what? I take from this article is that if we don't have a humane society where it's a matter of making sure that there is equity, we are headed in the wrong direction. Clearly, with everything that's going on now, we're going down the wrong path because anytime you're talking about this, fiat system where the rules can be rewritten by those who have control as time goes on and we'll just print money just print money only to have to destroy it. We're going to inflate ourselves into destruction. And Brother Moses, what point stood out the most from you when you read this article? What were your questions? I said what what issue stood out the most when you read this article? What you took the most from this article? Mm-hmm. Oh, let us see. Uh, I'm not certain. Let's see. Nothing me, stands out in my mind right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't you come back to me? Thank you. I come back. We'll come back. Matter of fact, we ask everyone to respond to this closing of this article, which I thought was really one of the central points of the contradiction, in what in which is the wealthy country, the West, created this climate problem, but yet they don't want to contribute, not only to help solve it, but they don't even want the countries in the South to even have access to technology, where they can help prove prove upon you know the makeup of, of, of the issue of climate change. But I thought this would be an interesting point in terms of ultimately they talk about the choice will have to come down to those who did not create the problem. That's the countries in the South. And they said, mm-hmm. meanwhile, developing countries have an ugly choice before them. To forward the yeah, 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 but go ahead, Key. Go ahead, Yeah, but what's more interesting, though, when we talk about in terms of um, the nations that contribute the most to you know, the common footprint, it's the United States mm-hmm. of America. It's not Russia. It's not China. So the mm-hmm. mere fact that the U.S. contributed more to this, cli- to this climate crisis uh, speaks volumes in terms of their refusal to assist the global south in terms of uh, acquiring the technologies to fend off global warming. So so I, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that African leaders get the point. They begin to understand, you know, that, they, that America in particular, the West generally, have no interest in terms of their survival, and that if they don't work together to bring about a resolve, then, you know, the situation will be very, very problematic for the future of Africa. Okay, Brother Hacker, you hit on the head what we're going to do right now. Um, we're going to come to a closing. Today, our theme was telling the truth. 
and fighting for freedom. What we're going to do right now, just give each one of y'all a minute or so to do a summation on today's program, your final thoughts for the night. We're going to start out with you, Brother Moses, your final thoughts for the night. Okay, um, definitely it's been interesting. Uh, I'm glad uh, the caller was able to contribute, and I hope that we can get in depth in, 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 in this discussion about uh, uh, oppression and repression and the government role in it and, uh, you know, and finally, on climate change, um, yeah, the U.S. government is the most pollutant of, of all of all the governments on the planet, and uh, and it contributes to this global warming. But doesn't but Trump is, is ignoring it and uh, and uh, and doesn't even want to acknowledge it exists. Thank you. Thank you, brother, for your brother Moses for your contribution to today's program, and brother Jabari, what else your final thoughts for tonight? It's important that we not only stay informed, but we share the knowledge and be serious about getting organized to change the predicament we're in, because we're being attacked at every angle by any means necessary. Everything in that arsenal is going to be utilized against us, even some of the tools we use, so we have to be mindful of what we're up against. Peace. Thank you as well, Brother Jabari, for your contribution to today's program. And we'll go to Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Anthony. My final thought for tonight is that in order to in order to defeat our enemy, which is imperialism and all of its manifestations, we have to get organized. There is no other option, and the ultimate solution is pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. To learn more about the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, please visit our website at www.a-aprp hyphen gc dot org or call us at two zero two two four six four eight nine six. As also, Brother after we thank you as well for your contribution to today's program. And Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, it just seems to me this impetus of the system to destroy is 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 amazing. And it seems to me that at this point People should be beginning to get to understand the uh, the, the very real threats uh, facing humanity uh, when we look in terms of how the system operates. Uh, capitalism is one of the most destructive systems the world has ever known, and there's nothing nothing short of its, its eradication is going to solve the problem facing humanity. So people must become organized. They must build institutions. They must confront some very difficult questions. Even though I know it's more convenient, you know, to pretend like everything is fine, the reality is that Pretending everything is fine is not going to assure you of your survival in society. We must create institutions to confront some very hard realities. And having said that, Brother Africa, you know, I always encourage people to uh, to unravel the matrix, and you have a good night. 
And as well, saying to you, Brother Hackey, thank you for your contribution to today's program. To our listening audience, you've been listening to Africa on the Move. We are a weekly uh, radio program where we come on a weekly basis where we can speak truth to power and hope to provide you with some information so that you can use it as a tool for liberation, to help liberate your people and to help liberate humanity for all of the various forms of oppression. Africa on the Move is a community development project of the African Wedding Association. And you have any views, comments that you'd like to share with us or would like to be a guest on our program, please email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com. Until next week, we will just ask you to remember to always strive to go forward with our backwards novel, and always not forget that Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all African free. Let's get organized, and we're going to leave you with some sounds of sweet liberation, starting with Africa, and long as you're back.
the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.